Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because, you're, because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Here ends the reading. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, it's so wonderful to see you uh, online this morning. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's great to see your smiling faces. Uh, let me uh, particularly welcome a few people that I can see on my screen. Um, our senior minister is joining us, so uh, we all have to be on our best behaviour this morning. Um, uh, we welcome Kevin. Uh, good to see you joining us. Uh, and also um, one of our... Um, student ministers from previous years. Uh, Monique uh, is also here. So uh, really great to see you, Monique. Uh, and also, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, a big welcome to you. My name is Huey, and uh, I'm the minister of, of Church at Nine. Uh, now, especially if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're going to be uh, thinking a lot about sex this morning. And I just wanted to um, mention that uh, from the outset, because uh, we don't Talk about sex all the time at church but you've just joined us on a week where we happen to be talking about sex and so uh, i hope um uh, what the bible says uh, is illuminating for you uh but uh, even more than that i hope uh you uh, along with the rest of us can uh, really come to appreciate the god uh who gives us uh, good gifts uh, such as uh se sexual intimacy and so uh, that's uh, my hope and prayer this morning that we would come to uh, know this God better, uh, this generous God who gives us um, uh, so many good gifts. So uh, it'll be great if you can have uh, 1 Corinthians 7 open in front of you. 
uh, and I'm going to lead us in prayer that God will help us this morning and uh, we'll get stuck into this passage. Uh, will you join with me as I pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, this morning uh, for bringing us together. Uh, Father, um, living in a fallen world, uh, there are so many distractions uh, in our lives that, that occur. Um, uh, this morning we witnessed um, the failure of, of technology and uh, um, yeah, just uh, interruptions uh, to uh, our service. Uh, but we thank you so much for um, our tech team. Uh, we thank you for their loving service and for the ways they work behind the scenes to, to serve us. And uh, we pray that uh, you would continue to help us to be uh, a church that uh, serves one another, uh, bears with one another, and encourages one another to keep on growing in you. Now, Father, we ask that you would um, help us as we now turn our attention to your word. Uh, please teach us uh, by your Holy Spirit um, in the knowledge that uh, you give us all things in your word for life and godliness. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I go into a shopping centre, uh, I don't know where, where to look these days. Uh, you know, you have these huge uh, sexualized pictures of women in the windows of lingerie stores. Uh, you have sexually explicit music playing in the background. Uh, you often see people wearing sexualized clothing and uh, you just, uh, you know, it leaves little to the imagination. And uh, you are just assaulted by image after image. Uh, now, friends, I, I don't say this in order to be, you know, that grumpy minister <laughs> who, who uh, wants to speak about these things. But just to make the point that uh, we live in a world that glorifies sex. It's true, isn't it? You know, in our world, sex has become uh, one of the ultimate goals of life in the hope that it will bring meaning and identity and satisfaction to our lives. Now, that's why the main characters in movies such as The 40-Year-Old Virgin are seen to be tragic figures because uh, they simply are not sexually active. But on the other hand, Christians are to glorify not sex but God. Now, that's why Paul ended last week's passage in chapter 6, verse 20, by saying these words. Chapter 6, verse 20, uh, do you remember these words? He says, so glorify God in your body. It's not that Christians can't enjoy sex, but it is to say that the ultimate goal of the Christian person's life is not to glorify sex, but to glorify God. Not only in the things that we do uh, in our religious lives, but also the things we do with our bodies. So glorifying God has much to do uh, as much to do with our sex lives as any other part of our lives. Uh, now, in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul speaks about uh, two states of life in which we are to glorify God in our sexuality. That is, heterosexual marriage and singleness. Uh, today's passage has a lot to do with uh, marriage, and next week's passage has a lot to do with singleness. But I hope and pray that uh, today, uh, as we look at the topic of marriage, uh, our single friends will listen just as much as our married friends to God's teaching here. And that next week, 
uh, our married friends will listen just as hard uh, as our single friends because we are to be a people who are not only interested, uh, not only to be interested in ourselves and our own circumstances, but we are to be those who understand others and uh, learn how to care for others uh, in their state of life as well. Uh, what then does the Apostle Paul say about glorifying God in marriage? Well, the first thing he says is that we glorify God by having sex within marriage, having sex within marriage. Now, you'll see there that Paul is responding to something that the Corinthians uh, have actually written to, to Paul in a, in a previous letter. For uh, in verse 1, uh, Paul quotes the Corinthians who were saying these words. You can see it in quotation marks. They were saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, now, friends, it's not that the Corinthians were against having sex. You know, if you remember from last week, they were the ones who were visiting prostitutes. But here, uh, they are specifically talking about marriage and saying that it is good for husbands not to have sex with their wives for pleasure. Uh, the, the word for man and woman uh, in the Greek uh, is the same word for husband and wives. I think Paul is speaking about marriage here. Well, in the Roman world of Paul's day, uh, society believed that the purpose of sex with your wife was to uh, have babies uh, in order to uh, continue your family name. But if you sought sex for pleasure, you didn't actually have sex within your marriage, uh, you would seek sex uh, outside of the marriage, uh, perhaps with prostitutes, uh, perhaps by having a mistress, or if you were wealthy, by uh, perhaps having sex with your slaves, you see. In some ways, uh, this is not too different to our world's attitudes towards married sex, is it? Uh, you may have heard of the now infamous website called Ashley Madison. Um, what uh, Ashley Madison seeks to do is uh, they, they seek to link up married people so that uh, they can have uh, an affair with each other. But the thinking behind this website is that married sex is boring. And if you really want sex for pleasure, if you really want exciting sex, then you must seek it outside of the marriage. Uh, monogamy is monotonous, is one of their slogans. And millions of people have signed up for their services all around the world. But no. Can you see here that Paul encourages married Christians to enjoy sex for pleasure? Notice he says in verse 2, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In verse 3 he says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to the husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Now, uh, that's not Paul the misogynist, is it, speaking? It's uh, not Paul the male chauvinist, as so many critics of 
the Bible and the Apostle Paul in particular think. For Paul here is radical for his day in recognizing that women also have sexual desires and also have equal standing in marriage. But friends, it's very important to see here that Paul is not saying husbands and wives have a right to demand sex from each other. Now, if you are married, as I am, this is not saying that we have a right to demand sex or demand certain sexual acts or that we abuse our spouse by being forceful in any way. That is an abominable thing. Rather, if you are a Christian person who is married, this is God's encouragement for you to give yourself voluntarily. Do you notice the word give uh, in this passage? You are to give yourself voluntarily to your spouse in sexual intimacy. Now, this is often difficult because uh, the reality is that marriage partners will often have very different sex drives. Uh, often it's the husband who desires sex more than the wife. Not always, but generally so. And so if you are a wife, I encourage you to uh, give of yourself to your husbands, even if you are not particularly desiring sex every time your, your husband would like to be intimate. Now, uh, before all the husbands sort of cheer me on at this point, uh, I also want to say that if you are, are a husband, uh, will you give yourself to your wife in ways that will be good for her? And that might mean uh, speaking to your wife and being interested in her uh, more than you are in, interested in sex. It might mean doing the dishes or taking out the garbage so that your wife feels loved. It might mean taking more, more spiritual leadership in the home. And sometimes it might even mean having the discipline not to ask for sex when you know that your wife will be better served without it. Well, you see, just as God is a giver, he gives his son for our salvation. And just as Jesus is a giver, he gave his own life at the cross for our salvation. But those who are married are to be givers rather than takers when it comes to sex within marriage. But further, uh, did you notice that sex within marriage is to be a, a regular thing? Uh, in verse 5, Paul says these words. Uh, have a read with me. Verse 5 of chapter 7. Do not deprive one another except by mutual agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. That is, not having sex in your marriage is to be the exception rather than the rule, according to the Apostle Paul. A sexless marriage, which is very common these days, is a very unhealthy marriage. Now, I don't think these verses are commanding married couples to uh, stop having sex from time to time in order to 
spend more time praying and reading the Bible together. That may be a good thing to do, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. Rather, what he is saying is that there will be times in life when what is needed is not sex, but prayer. Now, perhaps that might be times when uh, one of the, the marriage partners is suffering from illness or sickness. Perhaps it might be a time of family tragedy. Perhaps it might be after the birth of a baby when sex is difficult. And so during those times, it is okay not to have sex, says Paul. This isn't a command not to have sex. But if you abstain, it should be by mutual agreement. But it is recognizing that there are times in life when it is difficult to have sex, and that is okay. Now, I know the million-dollar question that everyone is uh, wanting to ask at this stage is, how often should married couples have sex? And so I thought of asking a few couples to share uh, what they do. Only kidding. Um, I would never do that uh, in public. But it seems to me that God's wisdom here is not about how many times a week, but just the fact that married couples enjoy this kind of intimacy uh, as much as possible and as often as possible. Of course, there may be many barriers to this, depending on your situation if you are married. Some of us might find the idea of going from irregular sex to regular sex quite daunting. Others of us might find speaking about sex with our marriage partners embarrassing or shameful or very awkward. Others of us might have medical reasons which makes sex difficult or painful. Others might have emotional issues which make regular sex difficult. And it might even be good to seek some professional counseling or help. But the goal here is to communicate with our spouse. And perhaps lockdown is a, is a good time uh, to do this and to work towards healthy intimacy in our, in our marriages. How can I encourage uh, all our married friends uh, to work towards this in our church family? I think this is particularly helpful for our single friends who can often think that married sex is a utopia. You know, uh, married people find sex easy and they have it all the time. <laughs> Some uh, single people may think, but no. Uh, just as there are challenges when it comes to our sexuality as single people, there are challenges with sexuality for married people as well. But the point here is that not having sex within marriage is to be the exception rather than the rule. But why should married couples have sex regularly? Well, in this passage, Paul gives a negative reason and then a positive reason, which in the end amounts to the same thing. And so negatively, uh, married couples should have sex regularly as a way of avoiding sexual temptation. Now, you can see it there in verse 2, can't you, where Paul says that it is because of the temptation to sexual immorality that married couples should enjoy sex regularly. And you can see it again 
uh, in verse five, where the, where the reason why married couples are only to take short breaks from sex is so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Interestingly, married sex is also seen to be one way for singles to avoid sexual immorality as well. And so in verse eight, you can see there that Paul addresses those who are unmarried as well as the widows. And he says, whilst my preference for you uh, is to remain unmarried, uh, for reasons we'll get into next week, he says in verse nine that if you cannot exercise self-control, then you should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, sex within marriage is seen to be the ultimate safe sex. It is a way to protect yourself against sexual immorality because what is most important to God is not whether or not you are married, but your godliness in this area. Uh, now, I know that uh, this is a very difficult uh, thing to, to think about for uh, some of our single friends, isn't it? For there are many single Christian people who struggle with sexual temptation and who would love to be married, but find that the right person has just not come along yet. But I want to say that whilst marriage is one way to protect yourself against sexual immorality, uh, it is certainly not the only way and so if you are single, then certainly pray to God for a suitable marriage partner if that is what you desire. But just remember that God has promised you that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But are there people who should remain single because they have the so-called gift of singleness? Now, if you have a look at verse 7, uh, you'll see there that Paul speaks about different kinds of gifts that God gives to people. Um, and many uh, people understand this to be speaking about the gift of singleness or celibacy. Uh, often Christians think that those who have this gift are people who, you know, do not feel as much sexual temptation as others might. Uh, listen to what one commentator says about how to know whether you have this gift or not. He says, if you are single and know down in your heart that you would get married in an instant if a reasonable opportunity presented itself, you probably don't have the gift of singleness or celibacy. If you are single and find yourself terribly frustrated by unfulfilled sexual responses, you probably don't have the gift. But if neither of these things seem to bother you, rejoice. You may have found one of your spiritual gifts. Now, at this point, uh, many Christian singles are greatly relieved because they know, you know that they want to get married and they know they struggle with sexual temptation. And so they conclude that they don't have the gift of singleness. But it's strange that you would rejoice in not having a certain gift from God, isn't it? But many people view the gift of singleness a little bit like this. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, getting socks for Christmas. You know, you'd rather have the PlayStation instead 
But friends, let me say that this is a huge misunderstanding of the gift of singleness. For I think this way of looking at singleness is way too subjective. I mean, what do you do if you are single and struggle with singleness and uh, you end up concluding that, that you don't have the gift of singleness? You still have to live as a single person, don't you? And so it would be rather cruel of God, don't you think, to give you the state of singleness in your life at the moment, but not give you the gift in order to live in that state of singleness. Further, now it doesn't work the other way around, does it? I mean, imagine if you are a married person, but you find marriage hard. Uh, you know, you find it difficult getting along with your spouse. Uh, you don't particularly enjoy changing nappies. Uh, you don't particularly feel that you are doing a good job as a husband or as a wife. And so you conclude that you don't have the gift of marriage after all, but the gift of singleness. But what do you do in that situation? And so uh, I don't think that uh, this is what Paul is talking about here. Rather, the gift that he is talking about is the state of life that God has given you and me at this present point in time. And so if you are single now, then praise God that he has given you the gift of singleness. But don't see it as a burden, but as a gift from God that is to be used in order to glorify him. On the other hand, if you are married now, then praise God that he has given you the, the gift of marriage. You don't see it as a burden, but see it as a gift from God so that you might work out with your spouse how you might glorify God together in your marriage. Of course, these gifts are not permanent. Uh, for one day, uh, the single person might exchange the gift of singleness for the gift of marriage if they get married. Alternatively, the married person uh, might one day exchange the gift of marriage, uh, as some uh, of us here well know. Uh, exchange the gift of marriage for the gift of singleness, if their spouse passes away, for example. But the point is that both gifts are to be used for the glory of God. But if Sex within marriage is a way to guard yourself against sexual Im immorality. Then the positive side to this is that sex within marriage is God's way of helping married people to stay together. Uh, that's why in verse 10, Paul speaks about not divorcing your marriage partner. Uh, notice here that he's not giving a full-blown theology of divorce. But rather, he's simply reiterating Jesus's teaching on divorce to make the point that God's intention for marriage is that it is for life and that sex within marriage is the powerful glue that, uh, keeps, that helps keep marriages together. Uh, I was reminded this week just how powerful sex is when uh, I read a book on prostitution. Uh, some of you may have seen this book, but it's, it's a book called uh, prostitution narratives, stories of survival in the sex trade. And uh, it tells the real stories of women who have escaped this awful trade, many to find salvation 
uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, one such lady is a person by the name of Kendra Chase. And I was fascinated by the language she used to describe her experience of sleeping with thousands of men. Uh, she says this. She says, not only did they take uh, not only did they take a piece of me, they replaced it with a piece of them that I carry for forever. I was numb and depressed every single morning while doing my hair and makeup, fantasizing about when and how I would end my own life. See, friends, uh, sex is the powerful glue that is meant to join two people together in lifelong union. And so if you sleep with multiple partners, then you end up leaving a piece of yourself with each person, and they leave a piece of themselves with you in ways that are deeply painful and damaging. It's a bit like a post-it note. You know, it's, it's sticky the first time, isn't it? But the more you, you uh, rip it off and stick it and attach it to other surfaces, then it loses its stickiness because it leaves a little bit of itself on all the surfaces that it's been with. And that's what sex is like if it is used against God's will. But here, the positive view of sex is that married people should have sex regularly because it glues two people together in faithful, lifelong union in ways that glorify God. For faithfulness, is the hallmark of God, isn't it? In the gospel, we can see that God has been faithful in keeping his promises of salvation to his people. And we can see the faith of God's people, which has been given to us as a gift. And so that's why faithfulness uh, really does glorify God. It's because it points um, us to God's faithfulness in the end. Well, friends, uh, we've seen that marriage partners are encouraged to have sex regularly as a way of glorifying God. But finally, what do you do if you are a Christian person and you are married to an unbeliever? Further, what if your unbelieving spouse is involved in sexual, uh, sexually immoral activity? Uh, does their sexual immorality defile you before God? Should you divorce them? perhaps. Now, uh, this is a real issue for many Christian people, and uh, perhaps some of you might know uh, the, the real difficulty in be being married to an unbeliever. But notice in verses uh, 12 to 13 that Paul says, if your unbelieving spouse wants to continue living with you, then you should not seek a divorce. Further, the extraordinary the extraordinary thing here is that rather than the Christian spouse being contaminated by the unholiness of the unbelieving spouse, uh, it's actually the other way around, says, says Paul. It's the unbelieving spouse who becomes holy because of the Christian spouse. Now you can see it there in verse 14, can't you? Uh, Paul says, for the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be uncle unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Isn't that extraordinary? 
But what does it mean for the unbelieving spouse to be made holy in this case? Well, uh, it cannot mean that they are automatically saved by God, can it? I mean, the entire New Testament tells us that salvation requires a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither can it mean that the behaviour of the unbelieving spouse improves in holiness. It may or it may not. I once knew a lovely Christian lady who was grieved because her unbelieving husband would go to the garage every night to, to watch pornography. And that never improved. But friends, uh, what Paul is saying here is that the unbelieving spouse is made holy in the sense that God has now um, brought them into this unique situation where they have been given every opportunity to be saved. I mean, they have a Christian spouse who is displaying Christ to them every day. They have Christian books on their bookshelves. They have Christian people from church dropping around. They hear about Zoom services during the pandemic. You see, they have every opportunity to hear the gospel and turn to Christ and be saved. Of course, I, I need to be clear that uh, this passage is not giving permission for Christians to marry unbelievers. Now, that is always a foolish thing to do. And I've always refused to marry a Christian to an unbeliever. Rather, what Paul is addressing here is the situation where uh, there, there have been unbelievers who are married to each other, where one of them becomes a Christian. Now, that was the situation in the first generation of Christianity, wasn't it? Everyone was an unbeliever until some of the, uh, the, uh, some of the people ended up converting to Christianity. But notice that in these relationships, there may be situations where it is okay in God's eyes to divorce and even to remarry. Now, what are those situations? Well, in verse 15, it is the situation where you are married to an unbeliever and your unbelieving spouse decides to leave you. Now, in that case, Paul says, let it be so. Um, personally, I also think uh, Paul also envisions other situations as well, because uh, notice in verse 15, again, that he uses the words, in such cases. In other words, uh, there may be other cases where divorce and remarriage might be appropriate. I think a clear example of this is the case of domestic abuse, whether it be physical abuse or emotional abuse or sexual abuse or spiritual abuse. If one spouse, whether they claim to be Christian or not, continues to abuse the other spouse, I think there is sufficient biblical grounds for understanding that as an unbeliever leaving the believer and grounds for seeking a divorce. For as Paul says in verse 15, God has not called you to live in continual conflict with your spouse, but he has called you to peace. Well, friends, uh, how are you and I going at glorifying God in our bodies? Uh, whether you are single or married, if you are a Christian person, 
then the goal of your life is not ultimately sex, even though sex is a good gift from God, but it is to glorify God in your body. Now, sex is a very powerful thing, isn't it? A bit like a fire. You know, when you have a fire in the fireplace, then uh, it is warm and delightful. But when you have a fire outside the fireplace, it is destructive and uncontrollable. But what we've seen today is that the way to glorify God is to enjoy sex in warm and delightful ways within the fireplace of marriage. And so will you and I, whether we are married or single, glorify God by upholding the goodness of sex within marriage? If you are married, then it means giving yourself regularly to one another in sexual intimacy. If you are single, then it means being committed to the idea of sex within this context only and loving and supporting your married friends uh, in all the joys and challenges and difficulties of marriage in ways that encourage them and strengthen their marriage. For that's how we glorify God uh, in our bodies. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that every good gift that we have comes from your generous hand. And we thank you especially for the gift of your son whom you sent to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be reconciled to you and look forward to the ultimate marriage banquet of heaven itself. And Father, we also thank you for giving us the gifts of singleness and marriage. And we pray for our single brothers and sisters. We thank you for the great blessing that they are to us. And we pray that you would help them in their struggles, but also help them to see their state not as a burden, but as a gift that is to be used for your glory. We pray for our married brothers and sisters. And we thank you for the blessing that they, they are to us. And we pray that you would strengthen them to be faithful to one another and to serve you together in ways that bring you much glory. Uh, we pray especially for um, our Christian brothers and sisters um, in our church and in our parish who may be married to unbelievers. Uh, we pray that you would help them to persevere in their Christian life, even as they live with somebody who does not share their same faith. And we pray that you would give them wisdom to adorn the gospel of our Lord Jesus in their lives in ways that will make the gospel attractive so that their unbelieving spouse might come to know the hope of eternal life. In all this, we ask you that you would help each and every one of us to glorify you in our bodies. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.